Let us once again turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We shall read from verses 26 to 33 as we read scriptures. Let us think and pay attention to what we read. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 26 to 33. Reading, For the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question, for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other, for why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I, have, which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Give none offence, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. May God bless the reading of his word. Now let us do a very quick review of where we are at. Remember this picture that we have drawn. We have established that the chief end of man is truly to glorify God. We've seen passages and passages of scriptures confirming that that indeed is why God made you and I, and that is what he made us for, to glorify him. And then we learned what is the glory of God. The glory of God is about his person, about his power, about his position. And though we read about mountain shaking, bright lights, um, smoke, well, all those are just to catch the attention of the people, but that is not, well, light and smoke is not his glory. God describes his glory as his character, his person, his creation, his work of salvation, his power, and who he is ultimately in the universe, and that every man will eventually bow and worship him and have to admit that he indeed is the supreme God. So that is his glory. Never forget that. When we say the glory of God, think of these three Ps, at least. At least. And then what it means to glorify God? It means to magnify Him. Make sure that others will see who God truly is through your works, through your life, through your living. So when we say the chief end of men is to glorify God, it is about our aim how to glorify God. We talk about what is the glory of God, what is glorifying God. Now, how? We must aim that through us, the person of Christ is seen, his power, the power of God is seen, who he really is as supreme is seen. And how do we do that? We must aim. We must aim. This is a very important word. The chief end of man means this must be your chief aim. You really 
focus and let this be the one thing that is in your sights all the time. If someone is aiming at something, he's always looking at the sights of the gun, for example, never taking the eyes off it and concentrating. So we must concentrate. We must be very, um, um, very um, focused on what? The, pers the person of Christ, how to magnify the person of Christ. Be Christ-like. Everything that we learn in the Bible to obey is to be Christ-like. Then we glorify Him. It is not nebulous. Glorify God, what does it mean? It, it is simply being Christ-like. Then how do we reflect, how do we, sorry, how do we magnify His power? Make sure we point people to God. In everything that we do, give glory to Him. People really see that He is the one. Don't steal glory from God. So always make sure that they will know Him. They will not remember me. They don't, they won't, if they don't thank me, it does not matter. All that matters is I have pointed them away from me and onto the glorious God. All right? So that is what it means. We studied some examples. Then his position. How do we show, magnify that God is indeed supreme? Well, by our life, that he is truly the Lord of our lives. The Christian that lives like he is the master of his own life cannot say that he is glorifying God. So when we understand all this, then we have to ask ourselves the next thing. That is what we'll cover today. Now, so we know the chief end of men. We, we drew that. We know what it is to glory, what is the glory of God, the three Ps. Then we saw that to glorify God is to magnify, magnify, all right? That people will see his glory in these three aspects at least, the glory of God. So we aim to do that. But as we look at all this, we will have to ask ourselves, what is the barrier that prevents us from reaching that goal? The Christian must know. Once you can identify examples of barrier, of course we cannot finish all the different barriers in three messages. This will take many messages, but at least identify some of them. That is what we want to learn today. Then when we know, then we can identify them in our lives, be watchful of them, and remove these barriers from our lives. So let us look, first of all, one of the barriers. Now, did you ever notice that the promises of God is actually to glorify Him? Have you ever asked yourself, why does God give us so many promises? Now, turn with me, turn your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse we shall read verses 18 to 20, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Are you there? Now let us read together. 
But as God is true, our word to word to you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, who was, sorry, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. Now notice verse 20. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Take note of this verse. We often read about promises, but we don't ask ourselves, why does God give promises? Here it is made explicitly clear. The chief end of man is to glorify God, and every promise given, is it every? Verse 20 says, for all. Whenever God makes a promise, he has a clear aim in, the, in his mind why he's giving it to us. His, his promises are for unto the glory of God. And how? The chief end of men. By us. By us. Every time you read promises in the Bible, then you have to ask my, yourself, how am I going to make sure that these promises are ones that I trust in them? Because if I don't trust in God's promises and I don't live out God's promises in my life, then I can't say that it is unto the glory of God by me. I fail. Now, when the Christian lack trust and faith in the promises of God, fearful, unwilling to um, cling on to and go with the promises of God. No matter what you see, don't live by sight. Live by faith. When the Christian has weak faith, when the Christian is um, lacking in this faith, in God's promises, we actually are living lives that shame the glory of God. I want to say that again. Don't think that weak faith is something that um, is a small thing. And it's, well, everybody's faith is weak. Everybody has struggled trusting the Lord's promises. But you must know that every promise penned by God is for us to achieve the chief end of men. Very often Christians live lives that says, well, we keep saying, I want to glorify God. The chief end of men is to glorify God. We are very quick to answer that. But yet, we live lives that almost without saying, but by our actions, by our choices, we are almost like saying, oh yeah, God, really? Really? This is really going to happen? This is what um, you will do? Really? That is very often our lives. You cannot say, I want to glorify God. And then, live lives that constantly distrust God. It is not by our lips alone that we glorify God. I want to live out the chief end of man. Very often, if not the most important part, 
is really our lives. By our lips, we say we glorify God, but actually by our living, we blaspheme His name. We take His name in vain. We put Him to shame all the time because of lack of faith. Do note what God said about Abraham. Turn to Romans chapter 4. Turn to Romans chapter 4, verses 19 to 21. Romans 4, 19 to 21. All right, if you're there. Now, if you have this barrier, you have this problem of trusting in God, may this stir you. Romans 4, 19 to 21. And being not weak in faith. We should not be weak in faith. He's obviously talking about Abraham. He considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith and what? Giving glory to God. Being strong in faith, being not weak in faith, he gave glory to God. Christian, do not look at circumstances, situation, and say, you don't understand, my life is different. Abraham would be the one that, have, that is fully qualified to say, come on, it's not possible. My situation is different from others. He's a hundred years old. Why do you think God gives this kind of details? Why do you think God says, Sarah's womb, was dead. It's an impossibility. But he staggered not. He heard, he believed, and he did not shake. He stood very firm. As if when he heard it, he just simply knew that it's as good as done. He staggered not. At what? At the promise. At the promise. Christian, when we read promises of God, when God says, live like that, I will help you. Lead your family like that, I will help you. Trust me. Obey. My commandments, they are not grievous, they are to help you. It is for your good. We always say, yes, it is meant for my good and for his glory, but really... Unbelief in the promises of God shames God. Now look at verse 21 of Romans 4. And being persuaded, no, and being fully persuaded. Persuaded about what? What he had promised that word again. He was also able to perform. What is it saying? When God makes a promise and we stagger and we are not fully persuaded, we may be persuaded, well, maybe it will work in certain situations. Maybe I am persuaded if I were younger, Abraham can say that. Can say that. Maybe we are talking about, well, Sarah, 50 years ago, I can believe that. No, fully. Half persuasion, semi-persuasion, three-quarter persuasion of God's promises does not glorify him. Why? Explained here. What he had promised, he was able also 
to perform. Also, God does not promise and then make empty promises and are not able. He promised and he can definitely do it as well. Do what? Well, in this case, it's specifically about Sarah, Abraham, having a child at their very senior age. Christians, why does lacking faith shame God? It's because we are saying, God, you cannot do what you say. You cannot perform what you have promised. It is not possible. Well, you may say it in your heart, and no one knows. Remember we said, I think in the second or first session, glorifying God is not simply showing outwardly. Yes, we drew the diagram, shining forth, magnifying to men. But glorifying God is also about the persuasion in your heart. How you think about God, what you think about God, your impression of who God is and what He can do, that either shames God in your mind or glorifies Him inside, within you, before you even talk about glorifying God before men. What is God in your heart? Can you imagine when God makes promises and you say, My child, why do you fear in this situation? I know what you're going through. It looks impossible. It looks very difficult. But my child, why do you think this way about me? That I cannot do it. That I will fail you when you live for me, when you obey my commandments. Why do you think I will fail you? Because many of us, we keep looking at our situation, looking at the things around us, looking at what we have, what we don't have, then we think it is always things and us. But God says, it is me. It is me. Why do you doubt me? So I hope we remember from now onwards, maybe make it a memory verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For all the promises of God, in him are yea, and in him are men, unto the glory of God, by us. Now, whatever the situation, like I said just now, it cannot be worse than Abraham. cannot be more impossible than Abraham. Some of us have been living lives in disobedience, to certain things that you know God says you must, you must do. Everyone has gone through it, but you still fear, whatever it is. It may be unwillingness to live the right family life. It may be you fear, how can I support my family on one income? Maybe you fear, what if my husband loses his job? Then I don't have any skills to support our mortgages. You fear, and then you disobey God, and then you shame God. Some of us, maybe we ought to be baptized. We are back in church. We can once again partake of the Holy Communion during the time of COVID. Have you reflected? When everyone is so anxious to come back, that we can have Holy Communion, keep the one of the 
two sacraments. And then the first one that is needed, have you asked yourself, why have I been delaying? Fear? What is your fear? God says, you obey me. You know that is the commandment. An unbaptized child of God. I have to say honestly, shames God. Why? Because baptism is the public declaration of your trust in God as your Savior, not only that, but your acknowledgement of Him as Lord of your life. That is the third P, the person, uh, sorry, the position. That is a public declaration. You say, well, no need. I come to church. Everyone knows I'm a Christian all these years. But you know, if I go through baptism, I'll go through a lot of trouble. The next time someone asks you, what is the chief end of men? And when you say to glorify God, I hope then you ask yourself, then why am I shaming him by disobeying him because I fear? Now, some of us live in fear and we lie, we cheat, we are dishonest. Eventually, we'll be caught and we'll shame God. But even before you reach that, God already will, see, will say, I am so ashamed of you that you are ashamed of me, that you have no faith in me. You say you want to glorify me. You say you want to tell people. You want to show people my power, the second P. But you will not believe that I can get you out of this situation if it is my will. It is easily done. Be fully persuaded. Why aren't you? Some of us, in order to have our family saved, we are willing to compromise. You may ask your family, go to that church, go to that church, just go, never mind. Or whatever other things. You don't believe that God says the elect will always be saved. You do not need to compromise the truth. You do not need to water down the gospel. You do not need to fear. Why don't you believe that the elect will be saved? Why must you compromise? Some of us, we trust in our own efforts. We don't trust God. God promised, but we say, no, we got to help God. Now, there's a difference between human responsibility and fearing and then taking things into your own hands. Not waiting on God, just going ahead, going ahead asking advice of men, looking, how the, looking at how the world does it, and then just go ahead and do things. Maybe some application for something. Maybe even to help yourself in some things in life, whether it's studies, whether it is um, some job. We lean upon men. We act as if, if without men, we will fail. Sometimes we ask for prayer requests. Please pray for me. I need to go for this operation. I need to go for that um, um, driving test or I need to go for this test or that test. And then the church prays. Then after that, when it's time to give thanks, very often, very sadly, is a long description of how someone 
was so skillful, so clever, so helpful, so capable. And you're so lucky to have such a doctor look after you. And then we go on and on and on, giving praise to many. It reflects truly in the heart who we think should get the glory. All right, so the promises of God given, I mean, he fulfills it. Give him glory. A child that does not fully, uh, that, who is not fully persuaded at God's promises, lives a life that shame him. Every promise is given to glorify him by us, not someone else. Each one of us given to us, for us. Now then we move to another aspect of promises. Does promises mean that it will be exactly as what we prayed for, how things should turn up, what the world sees as good, positive, good results, good outcome? It does not mean that. All the promises go for God. In Abraham's case, that God promised you will have a child, he will fulfill it. But don't forget, God also said there are promises, other things that he promised us. Each one who will walk holy lives, godly lives, will suffer persecution. Those are promises. Did you occur to you? Those are promises. God said that will happen, I promise you. God also promised that as we live for him, he will, that, that the truth will bring division between Christians, between family members. God says, that is what will happen, I promise you. But he promises that as long as we are on his side, we are doing the right thing. We glorify him. So don't think that promises means it must always be what we pray for to turn out exactly as what we imagine and what we think would be good, that would glorify God. Because sometimes we can ask, now how can less than excellent results glorify God? Because we say, well, I must, I must believe in God's promises, right? He will bless. We ask many, how come? Now, how, come, how can not being a manager at work glorify God? If I'm just an ordinary worker all my life, if I have only medical results, ordinary results, because I put God first in coming to church, in serving Him, in studying His Word. And then you say, well, how can being jobless, how can turning down a job and being jobless glorify God? Because we say, well, promises, right? God promised He will, he will provide for me. How can not having a job glorify him if I turn down a job that is sinful, that disobeys God? So we think wrongly and assume that promises means it turns out the way the world sees and what we see as will glorify him. And we can say, how can being single glorify God? My relatives, they mock me. My friends, they make fun of me. Well, if it's God's will for you to be single, then you obey him, you glorify him. We say, no, you know, if I just marry someone, 
Then it looks like I'm blessed. Looks like God kept his promise. Promise is not what you want. Promise is what God wills in his decretive will for you. You might say, how can being sick glorify God? I must be healed. I must not go to church because I might fall sick. I must not do this. I must not do that. How can driving to church and getting into an accident and die glorify God? No, I, I better not. You see, the reality is we keep thinking only good, humanly speaking, good outcomes glorifies God's promises. Our response to both promises that are so-called positive in the eyes of men, as well as not so positive in the eyes of men, it is our response. When God says, you live like that, you do this, you turn that down. And though you may go through difficulties, our submission to what God ordains for our life, we should talk about that after it's more, our submission to God's promise that He will provide, He will keep, He will help, even if you do not have a job because you obeyed Him. I'm not asking you to turn down jobs. I'm telling you if, if a job is clearly causing you to sin against God. God says, you just obey me and I will provide. Provide does not mean a lot of money, a lot of things. Private school. Provide simply means you will have the necessities, what is needed in time, at the nick of mom the moment. You will not lack. It is when the child of God are willing to live through a very difficult, challenging, seemingly impossible, seemingly embarrassing situation. You think for Abraham and Sarah to say, oh, we're going to have a child, you think people won't laugh at them? Even Sarah herself laughed. Seemingly very, very impos impossible and, and difficult, but how we are willing to still trust in God. That is what glorifies Him. It is not when I'm wealthy, when I'm healthy, when I have no problems in life. By compromising, I glorify Him. No. That is not what God says regarding His promises. Total trust, fully persuaded, without staggering, in whatever situation, glorifies God. So that is one of the barriers, lack of trust in the promises of God. Now then the second barrier that is related is what we view glorifies God, like very similarly what we just covered. Now, I want us to learn from God's Word, obviously, from the example. Of course, the best example is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ made it very clear. Now, turn with me to um, John chapter 11. John chapter 11. 
Now, this is about what God ordains for your life is meant to glorify Him. And if we will not submit to what God ordains for our life, we cannot say we, want to, we are willing to achieve the chief end of man. All right? What God ordains for your life is to glorify Him. John chapter 11, verses 3 to 4. Now, look at what Christ said about Lazarus. John chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, reading together. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. God said, This sickness is designed by God. It is, it is but for God's glory. And the Son may be glorified through it. Have you... Have you, has it occurred to you that God allows calamities, ordains, pre-planned, even sicknesses, severe sickness in the case of Lazarus, to the point of death. In fact, he needs to die. And then Christ will resurrect him and perform his great miracle, thereby showing to men that he is indeed God. When we would not submit, the sisters needed to understand this. Christ needed to explain to them, please no. Now, as a sister, of course, they loved Lazarus very much. They wept bitterly. But God says, even the very bitter, very painful things in life is designed for His glory. How we submit to it, how we accept it, will glorify Him. The next time we face certain things, well, of course, let it not be because of sin and chastisement. God says this is not the case of sin and chastisement. When you know that it is not any sin and you're not being chastised, when your conscience is clear in your heart, then say this is to glorify God. Very often we are ashamed to say, oh, don't, don't talk about my mom who is sick, or my dad who is sick, or I am sick, just, just keep it silent. It's very, it does not glorify God. It's very shameful. How can I be sick? How can my parents be sick? How can we have this calamity in the home? Now, if it is not because of sin, you should just be ready to share it and to see how God works, and then God is glorified. Now, Christ himself is the next example. John 17, we're in the book of John, John 17. John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ before he went to the cross and resurrect and go to heaven. John chapter 17, verse 1. Then these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son also may glorify thee. This is about glorifying God. Here is Jesus Christ. The Son said, I want to glorify you. The hour is come. What is the hour? This is the hour that he will be soon to enter into being persecuted and eventually crucified. The time has come. Did he run away from it? No, he submitted it. He simply prayed, Lord, please, now 
let this happen. Why? Ordained for Christ, the glorious Son. But he was going to die a shameful death. Look at how Peter would respond to Christ. I'll just read to you. You don't need to turn there. Matthew chapter 16, verse 22. Now when, uh, verse 21, when Jesus showed to the disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. To Peter, this is not a glorious thing for Christ to go to the cross. The world sees this crucifixion as something shameful. So Peter adapts the same ideas. But, God, but Christ himself said, The hour is come, I'm going to the cross to glorify you. Christ fully submitted to the will of God. In fact, in John 17 verse 4, he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Sorry, he says, John 17 4, I have glorified thee on earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. How was the life of Christ on earth? Yes, some men glorified him, but many were ashamed of him. Many rejected him. Is this glorious? But no, Christ says, I have glorified you. The life of submission to what the Father ordained for his life. He simply submitted to it, lifted it out, and he says, I have glorified thee. You want to say, Lord, I have glorified you before you die? Like Christ? Then you have to ask yourself, have I always humbly, joyfully, submitted to whatever God allows, whether it's, uh, it's illness that lasted my life, that gave, made, me, made life very difficult at the end of my life. Some of us may face that. Don't fear. Don't live with a long face and say, I th I th I've got cancer. Oh, this is like at the end of the world. If God has ordained that, then joyfully live the remaining days in submission. How we give thanks is what glorifies God, that this child is so submissive to what God ordains for his life. Peter saw things very differently. Then the Lord says, but he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offence to me, for thou severest not the things that be of God, but the, those that be of men. You see, the thinking that Peter allowed himself to be deceived into is very carnal. Submission to what God ordains, like the Apostle Paul. When he says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What did Paul say? He said, Most gladly will I, therefore, glory in my infirmities. He says, It is for my chance to glorify God. Whatever is 
the situation, whatever is the sickness, whatever is the um, loss, the pain. And this, in, in Paul's case, is a lifetime thing. What if God one day, and this is a very difficult thing, allows, and it is part of what He ordained for your life, to get into an accident and be permanently disabled? Would you be thinking this suffering, this sickness, is but for the glory of God? Or are you going to say, why, 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 Lord, why? That does not glorify God. Now, Paul says, I will rather, rather, I'd rather have this than if this is what God ordained for my life, I'd rather have this. I'd rather have this sickness that have no sickness. If this sickness is what God has ordained, and his, all things are meant for his glory, then I'd rather have this. Do you complain? I, I'd rather not. I, I wish, I wish, I wish. I wish I didn't go there. Then I would not have gotten into this accident. Then my child would not have died. Then my, I would not have had this loss in my life. I wish, I wish. But Paul says, I'd rather. I'd rather not have avoided this. It has to do with the glory of God. I'd rather glory in my infirmities. The infirmities was for God's glory. And notice what he said in first in Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. He continues to say, I therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Remember one of the P's. Which P is this? The second P. First is the person, second is the power, third is the position, the power. He said, the, the power of God. I want to show people the power of God in my life. I submit to this ordained infirmity, calamity in my life. The barrier to glorifying God is we do not like pain. We do not accept things that are in the eyes of the world. We sever the things that be of men, that's all. Be ready, my dear brethren. I say this to myself as well. Be ready, be prepared, have a sober mind that God may ordain that our lives may change drastically one day. Then the chief end of men becomes all of a sudden more precious it should not be more um, unwelcome, more murmuring from you. It should be, Lord, you mean this sickness is but for the glory of your name and your son? Then I'd rather, I'd rather go through this infirmity so that your power, the second P, will be shown in my life. How? Whatever we go through, if it is God's ordained um, um, part of our life, He will always help. Always. 
In fact, Paul is saying this because he knew if he was healthy, if he didn't, didn't have whatever is um, the thorn in the flesh, some say his eye, he had eyesight problem, some say he had speech impediment, whatever it was, people would say Paul is a great preacher. Paul is a, um, um, a great teacher and worker of the Lord. Because look, God bless him, he is so healthy. No, it is when people saw that he had all these challenges, but yet so mightily useful to God. Then people know it's the power of God, nothing else. You see, God allows certain things in our life. We must not see them as, as um, bad when they are meant to show that in my weaknesses, in my disabilities, in my lack of talent, in my lack of abilities, but yet God used, God brings so much results through my life. Have you ever thought if we obeyed God and because of that, yeah, we don't have as much money as we would like to send our children to this kind of school, that kind of school, and we be able to put ourselves through certain kind of education and have all these things. And then have you ever thought that when you are successful in the world, people will just say, oh, because this person happened to have so much in life. Of course, you'll be like that. But have you ever thought that when you just obey God, live according to His Word, and then as a result, suffer difficulties, not have so much? I'm not saying every time you're a Christian, you, you, will, you will be poor. I'm not saying that. But if that is the will of God, and then your children succeed, and then you, your life is is fine and god uses your family and people will say wow it was never those things that they had it was god so sometimes god would have it that way but it is a barrier to us to glorify god because we do not like this kind of things paul says bring it on i like it if this is what god ordained i like it i'd rather have it because his aim is to glorify God. It was not a barrier for him. Now the last one, the last area. So we talk about lack of faith. We talk about lack of submission to what God ordains for our life. Now we talk about the third area. The third area. Now I wish I could ask your ask all of you um, physically present what do you think it might be what do you think it might be what is the opposite what is the thing that opposes God what is the thing that God always tell them you must not have this in my life in, in your life sorry I am very jealous if you have it in your life, I am jealous. Why am I jealous? Because it will steal glory from me. What is that thing? All of you already know. Idols. What is another thing that would be a great roadblock to us achieving the chief end of men? Idols. Idols. Now, please turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42, are you there? Let's read verses 6 
to 8. Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 to 8, reading. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners from prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. What is God saying from verses 6 to 8? Now he says, I have called you, and I am your God, and I will guide you, I will use you, I will hold your hand, I will use you and give you my covenant. Why do I want to do all this? Verse 7, that you will be a testimony in the dark world for me. What is this testimony related to? His glory, verse 8. He linked it in. So that when people save, get saved, my elect, I chose you to and lead you to my elect. And when they get saved, they will now see me for who I am and glorify me. So here, God says, my glory will I not give to another, not to any man. Make sure we don't steal God's glory. And then, neither to graven images. I do not want people to praise graven images. I am the one, I am the one, not images, not idols. What is an idol? God says, I will not give glory to idols. So we better know what is an idol. Do we have idols? If we have idols, then we cannot say, I am living out the chief end of men. We better get rid of those idols. Now, I found something that was quite interesting, how this person um, used seven T's. I was trying to find out idols. What's the best way to help you remember idols? I've given a few descriptions. I don't want to repeat those descriptions. So I try to look for some new way to help you remember. Because God said, I won't share my, my glory with idols, so we better know. This person used seven T, seven, not seven T, seven T's, all right? The first T to help us remember. An idol is anything that we trust in more than God. We actually studied this. Failure to trust God means you are going to trust in something else, most likely. Failure to trust God. So anything that I trust in more than God is an idol. Scriptural. You think that that thing can help you. God says, I am not going to give my praise to graven images. Is this, these things did not help you. I helped you. Why are you trusting in those things? My friends, what do you trust in? We trust in money, we trust in our degrees, we trust in our health, we trust in our abilities and talents, we trust in men. And God says, I will not give glory to this. We cannot say that, that I glorify God when we trust in these things more than God. Now, I don't have time to elaborate in all this, we are running short of time. I'll go to the second T very quickly, but you think about these T's, all right? 
Now, the second T. An idol is something that you think upon more than God. What occupies your thought? Who occupies your thought? More than God. Is your child, your spouse, or even your work are things that seem to preoccupy you so much that you rather be thinking of those things, doing those things, occupying yourself with those things in your thoughts, planning, thinking, and that is who and what you're mainly occupied with. If your child, if it's your child, then if your child has become your idol. And God says, I will not share my glory with another. Do you think about your schoolwork during worship services, during Bible studies? Yeah, you come, but you sit there and you say, let me memorize my multiplication table. And then when pastor is preaching, you keep nodding. Mm, mm, because you just remembered that 12 times 12 is what? Mm, mm, mm. Are you really thinking about God at home? Do you think about Him? Next, the third T. An idol is, it comes from thinking, an idol is who and what you talk about more than God. Hmm? Constantly talking about our job. Constantly yakking about what I did today. Constantly getting attention for ourselves. I did this, I did that, you know, I was, and it's so funny, and it's always about me. You are the idol. Why do I keep encouraging us to have spiritual conversation. Firstly, it's in the Great Shema. Because it's the only way you can fulfill the Great Shema is constantly talk about me. An idol is when you talk more about those things or the person or yourself than God because God says you constantly talk about me. An idol. Constantly talk about things of School, job, hobbies, games, sports. When we talk about, when we think, what we think about, we end up talking about a lot. If you are a person who find that you really struggle, and I've said this a million times, but I still find it in our midst. There are people who just don't like you seem to have, don't like to talk about God. It seems like when there's a conversation about spiritual things, you find that their eyes glaze over and then they'll leave the conversation. You have idols. You have no delight in God. Your mind are on other things. When you are someone who struggle maintaining and actually do not have much delight in spiritual conversations. It is not just being with Christians, my friend. It is what you talk about. What idols are there in your fellowship groups? You know. 
The next T, the fourth T. What you thirst after more than God. What you thirst after more than God. What's the difference between thinking and thirsting? Thinking, you're happy to just think, 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 and talk, talk, talk. Thirst is when you need it quenched. I am not satisfied, I'm not happy, I'm not at peace until I have that thing or that person or what I am aiming for. I am not satisfied, not quenched. My thirst is still burning, raging, unless I have this result, unless I have this kind of position at work, unless my children are like that. I'm thirsting for that and I'll keep pursuing that. That is why it's always a barrier to us glorifying God, living out the chief end, because our thirst is not thirsting after the chief end of man. What you thirst, what you take pleasure in, what satisfies, what satisfies your flesh, your desire, your thirst. Now, that is number four and number five. What you tremble at more than God, that's your idol. What you tremble at, what you fear more than God. This again is linked to the faith part that we spoke about. When you fear your boss more than you fear God. When you fear losing your health more than you fear God. When you fear losing money, possessions, more than you fear God. When you fear your child will not be as successful in this world if your child goes to church, if your child serves God, if your child study the word. If you are afraid of anything more than God and that God can keep his promises, that is your idol. Please remember, God says, my glory will not, not give to another, neither my praise to graven images, to things. Why do we want to give the glory to these things, to these idols? Number six, T. What you treasure, what you treasure more than God. You can sum it up, what you treasure. What would you give up? Or rather, I should say, what you would not give up, that you cling on to, that is a treasure to you, deep in your heart, no one may know. There is one thing that is keeping you from living a life that glorifies God because it's something that will always be a barrier between you and God because this treasure is what you cannot let go of. Lord, if I give this thing up, it means that my life must completely change. Lord, I cannot. I'm not willing. It means too much to me. It's my treasure. The last T. What sits on the throne of your heart? This really summarizes everything. What or who sits on the throne of your heart? We studied that in the Great Shema the divided heart. There must be only Christ and Christ alone and nothing else and everything is subservient to him. He sits on the throne of your heart. 
then you know in you, you glorify Him. That is how you think of God. He's supreme in your life. And when you live out your life, all the other three Ps will be very obvious because He sits on the throne of your heart. He controls every decision you make, every choice you make in life is in relation to this one that sits on the throne of my heart. What do you want, Lord? Now, the greatest idol is what? We learned the idol of self. That is the worst idol. God says, I will not share my glory with you. Why did I choose 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Because Paul says, now I will give up eating meat if it stumbles my brother, if it causes my brother to be emboldened to also take food offered to idol without understanding and think it means something, I would not want my brother to think about idols like that. I want my brother to know who God is. I would rather than not eat meat. To Paul, Paul is not important. Paul is insignificant. That is why in this passage, now let's turn back to 1 Corinthians. I was hoping to preach more on this, but we have only three messages, not four, so I apologize for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, when he says in verse, when he says in verse 31, whether therefore ye eat or ye drink, now he advised people, be like me. Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And when he said that, what does Paul mean, eat and drink to the glory of God? He explains in the next few verses. Look at verse 32. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. He says to unbelievers, don't let them have any wrong ideas about God. Don't stumble them. To the Jews, to the Gentiles, even to Christians, the church of God. He has liberty, but he is not going to use his liberty. He is willing to avoid all appearances of evil. Sometimes you say, well, why must be, you know, it's my life. It's my family, it's my choice. And anyway, it's not sinful, right? In fact, that is how Paul answered them. Look at verse, look at verses 29 and 30. Now he says, Conscience I say not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judge of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of? For that for which I give thanks. Then he came up with that verse. What is he saying? He said, I know what you will say. Why, why, Paul, why Paul must we give up this kind of things? Because someone else? Because of someone else? Paul says, let us be nothing. If it will help people come to know Christ, how do we know? Verse 33, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, to glorify God, it will take you to make sacrifices, to put aside yourself, even legitimate liberties, Many of us are not willing because the self is the idol. Which is why he mocked them in a sense in verse 29. I, he said, why is my liberty 
Why? Yeah, you keep asking why, why, why? Because you are so self-centered. And then he says in verse 33, not my profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. When they are saved, they will know God. They will glorify God. I want as many people to see the three Ps about God and they will only see it if they are saved. And I'd rather give up, I would willingly give up anything, any comfort. You know to what extent Paul wants to glorify God in his life? He said, well, eat and drink. Yeah, it means the smallest thing. But in closing now, let us come to this. Now, without this, we are not going to learn how to glorify God. All this is just systematic theology to you. That's all. But to Paul, now many of the verses I quoted are from Paul's writings. God used him to write this. But to Paul, it's not systematic theology. To Paul, it is his life. To glorify God is his life. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Oh, sorry. Let's, let's go to, oh, since, uh, let's go to first, uh, Philippians chapter 1 verses 20, 21. Philippians chapter 1 verses 20, 21. I hope to wrap this up in the next maybe couple of minutes. Philippians 1, 20, 21. Now let us read together. According to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. And then that is where our famous memory verse comes. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Many of us memorize verse 21, but verse 20 is the important context of what this for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What was the context? What was it about? Verse 20 tells us, it was about that Christ shall be magnified in my body. It was about magnifying Christ. Remember we studied the definition of what it means to glorify God, to magnify Him to make him clear to people. We can't make God bigger. We can't make God um, more glorious. God is already. It's just helping people to see with clarity, more enhanced view of who he already is. He said, I want Christ to be magnified in my body. Then when he said, for me to live is Christ, is, is Christ and to die is gain. And when he says, whether it be by life or death, he is saying that, whether I live or I die, I live and die for the glory of Christ, to magnify Him. And I willingly will die. I will have no shame. Whatever happens in my life, I will not be embarrassed. And He said, oh, this will always be the case in my life, with all boldness. Is living for the chief end, like Paul, so much of... Um, an absolute and only aim in your life. Is it? When we say the chief end of man, don't say it without this burning passion and this conviction in your heart. And like Paul that says, there's only one reason why I live or die in this body. Everything that I do, every fibre in me, is for the glory of God. 
That is the only reason why I do anything in my life, suffer anything in my life, to magnify Him. Is this so real in your life? Being able to answer what is the chief end of man has become such a cliché. I fear that we say it without this deep passion, this deep conviction in our hearts. It is not answering a shorter catechism. It is a life that is passionate with a single, unadulterated focus to glorify Him, magnify Him, His person, His power, His position. We come to the end of our camp soon. Some of you may come desiring to change. Some of you may come with a passion to change. But some may come as a routine. Every year we have camp. So I have camp. You may sign up. You may attend camp. But actually with no intention to make a change in your life. For Paul, it was life and death. It was not about an option. It was not about, well, just do things. It was life and death. Is it life and death to you to glorify God? Or just attend Bible studies? That's about it. What will it be when camp breaks? Go home, go to work, go back to old life. Go back to old idols. Go back to old fears. Go back to old faithlessness. Go back. Therefore, you do not want to change because you're faithless. Or are you going to say, this camp will change with regards to my understanding and now my living of God's life, of, of God's, to God's glory. I want to show people by my character, I will obey everything to be Christ-like. I will keep pointing people to him away from me so that they will know his power. I will have faith so that they will not doubt his power. I will endure all things because I want to show people that he's supreme in my life by my choices and by my submission. I want to change because I want to say like Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Let us rise to sing the closing hymn.